think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Theology. Theology. Unplugged. Hello, friends. Sorry to cut that off so short. That's a good song, though. If you want the song, that intro song, the full version of it, we don't have one. Wish we did, because it's good. Darn good. That is Greg Cromarty, if you can remember him, in the earliest uh, uh, broadcast when we did this. Welcome, those of you who are picking this up through iTunes or, or Spotify or wherever you're getting it from. Remember, I'm on YouTube as well. And so you can watch this, uh, and oftentimes you want to watch it because you want to see what's going on. You want to see uh, some of the pictures I put up, some of the graphs I put up. You know how good I am at graphs. We're going to have fun today. We are doing the Stump the Chump. You remember five questions, five minutes each. That's what we're going to be going through. Don't forget to subscribe. Um, I don't know why that is there. That should not be there. That was from before, but don't forget to subscribe. Click that button there, and... Then after, what did I say? Receive a special gift from God. Yeah, that's that's between you and God. You know, you you've been. I've heard rumors. That's it. Rumors that you get a special gift. So click that button. Get a get uh, subscribed and hit the hit the bell button so you can get a notice every time we go on. I'm gonna start doing this more regularly. As you know, since I've been doing this the last few months, I've kind of been testing it out. You know, I used to have other people that did all this stuff for me, but now I'm learning it. I, I kind of like it. It's fun. It's it's interesting. It takes up too much time, but it's interesting. Uh, don't forget to go over to the blog. You can see down at the blog, you can see in the the notes, credocourses.org. Go there, and you will find my blog. Written today, uh, published today, a, uh, a blog about tetelestai. The Greek word tetelestai, which means it is finished or it is completion. And all the implications of that moment, whenever Christ was on the cross and he said tetelestai, it is finished. What a great word that is. I love it. It is too cool. All right. So, as you can see here, I got a countdown timer. I added that. I did it all by myself. So, uh, hopefully it works. I've got five questions uh, to answer, and they are good questions, so I'm excited about it. All right, let's start with this. Boom. Is Christianity too narrow? I get this from another place uh, that answer this question, but it's, a, it's an important question. It's one that's often asked, is Christianity too narrow? The reason why you might ask this is simply because, not necessarily because you see it as narrow, uh, you may, but whenever you have other people come to you and say Christianity is too narrow, especially today, whenever we're living in a postmodern world and you have uh, uh, syncretism and inclusivism and uh, all kinds of isms that people bring to the table, most of them include this idea that Christianity is too narrow. And whenever I'm asked this, it's, it's really hard because I have to pause for a moment and I say, what do you mean by narrow? And, and you know, you've got a couple of things. Does... They may be saying, 
is Christianity not kind to people or or rejecting of people? And that's the last thing Christianity is. It's not narrow in that sense. It's not narrow in the sense of, hey, whenever you come to church, you have to, you know, assign a doctrinal statement, or whenever you talk to me, you have to agree with me on everything, uh, without me being kind and gracious. I try to be to everybody, do the best I can, just like anybody else. Christianity and Christians, that is not narrow. But if you're talking about Christianity as a doctrine of beliefs or the doctrine of beliefs that Christianity believes, specifically the relationship we have with Christ, and you're saying, is it open to other views as well? Then we'd say, no, of course not. I mean, every system is narrow. Even the system of people who say Christianity is too narrow. I don't belong to places that are too narrow because, I mean, they've created, they've drawn a line. And they are more narrow now. They, they, they won't let you cross that line. So they have a doctrinal statement as well. But our doctrinal statement is just a person. It is Jesus Christ. And so if you're saying, basically, you're saying to me, is there other ways to be Christian? Is there other ways to God in the view of Christians than Christ? And I would say, no, of course not. Uh, then you start packing on after that all these rules, and maybe that's what they're asking. Uh, does Christianity allow for certain lifestyle behaviors? And does Christianity condone uh, things that, it, that it, in the Bible it speaks against? And of course not. I mean, we're talking about trying to do what's right. We're talking about principles that just about everybody holds, and then these extra principles that are very debatable. Everybody's going to have a view on that. So the people who disagree with me about whatever view it is, and usually today it is about homosexuality, uh, gay people in the church. Do they allow gay people in the church? Of course we allow gay people in the church. Of course we do. We are more than happy to have them there. Well, the first goal of mine would not be to convert them either, but I would stand strong on my belief that the Bible teaches that the proper, the only way to have a relationship in this type of uh, romantic relationship is with another person of a different sex. That is the view of Christianity. So usually that's what people are asking as well. There's something implied. You must say, uh, no, we allow for everybody. And then you say, okay, that's kind of narrow, isn't it? that you're saying you have to believe what you believe about this particular subject. So Christianity is very, very inclusive in one sense. I mean, look at what Christ did. If, if we're out there acting like Christ, would you say Christ is narrow? You'd say in one sense, absolutely not. Everybody came to him. The, the harlots, the drunkards, everybody that was condemned in the day, the tax collectors as seen as the worst people in society, the drugs of society, they were accepted by Christ in the sense that he loved them. He, he accepted them to come follow him. He spoke to them. He was kind to them. He was gracious to them. But whenever you're going to ask questions that are specific, that have a yes or no answer, then he's going to answer it that way. He's going to answer it according to the truth, and therefore we follow Christ the best we can. And so whenever Christ, uh, although the, the this particular thing in uh, John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, whenever she comes to him and everybody's ready to stone her, uh, what does Christ do? He takes her 
and he accepts her, and he tells everybody there, if you let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. That is incredibly accepting. That is incredibly gracious. But he did turn to her and say, go and sin no more. So it's not condoning the sin. It is, It is. but it's very open. Okay, so we start up, stop. We got to reset because that turns off afterwards. And we got our next question. Here we go. Start. Uh, should Christians be involved in politics? <laughs> that That's a tough one. I mean, it's not really tough. It's easy in one sense. Uh, um, people should be involved in politics. Citizens should be involved in politics. That's part of the Constitution. That's part of being an American. Now, you might go to other countries where it is law that they are not involved in politics. Then that's that you had answered a whole different way. But here in Christianity, I mean, excuse me, here in, uh, Freud didn't slip there, here in America, we are commanded to be involved in politics because of our constitutional system. That is a democracy, a representative republic, and we are demanded. It's it, You can't, hey, wait, <laughs> that didn't even start. What is going on here? It is counting down over here, but it's not counting down there. Let me see if I can get this back. Off, on, no, they didn't come back. Let's see if it comes back if I go like that. Nope. Okay, well, I'm watching. It's counting down. we got three minutes and 53 seconds, and I'll try to fix that in just a moment. But, yes, I mean, we should be involved in politics. Now, you we got to be careful in the context which that involvement allows and is expressed. Um, there, There is, it, I've been involved with theology for 25 years now. That, that's whenever, from whenever I went to seminary to now. Um, and it is incredibly divisive. Uh, things that you, I mean, question women in ministry, the most divisive thing right now, homosexuality in the church, the second most divisive thing, um, it, 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 different views, different doctrines, different denominations, and they fight and they argue and there is, there is strife many times. Uh, not not supposed to be in the sense of the strife that is that is not gracious, not understanding, and sometimes too dogmatic. But it's hard. It's hard being in theology, and you have to be careful with that. And you have to learn. You have to have some type of demeanor in which you adopt that is how you approach issues that are controversial. Doesn't mean we don't stand up for them. It just means we are we are not timid. But we are uh, very shrewd. That's a great word for it, shrewd. We are shrewd in the way in which we approach these things. It's the exact same thing with politics. I don't talk about politics very much, uh, if at all, myself. Whether Whatever outlet I have, I usually stay away from it. Now, the reason why I stay away is not the same reason you should, should adopt uh, you're in a different position. You have to adopt it according to your context. But I stay away because my job is divisive enough, okay? And I've got to deal with all those issues. And I'm trying to get people to come to Christ. 
I'm not trying to get people to turn to a system right now. I'd love to. I mean, I love politics. I really do. I'd love to be able to discuss it more. I'd love to be, you know, a political hack <laughs> online. I, I have fun with it. But at the same time, if I introduce that, I ought, it's more divisive than theology. That's what I was getting at earlier. <laughs> Believe it or not, politics is more divisive than Christianity. You probably don't have a hard time believing that, especially today. Uh, but I, I stay away from it because I don't want to divide over that in my ministry for what I've been called to do. I can't divide over that. I need so much to tiptoe around things. Doesn't mean that I'll back off whenever you ask me. It doesn't mean that I don't vote, but I keep it under the radar because I'm trying to tell about Christ. I'm trying to tell about theology. I'm trying to tell about truth. I'm trying to get people excited on both sides. So if I talk about politics half the time, then I'm cutting the country in half. I'm cutting the people, the, the my people group in half. And then I never get a minister to these other people. Now, a lot of things, whenever I do teach about Christ, I do believe that there are implications that will eventually at least make people come closer to what I believe to be the truth. Now, one of my friends, Tad, said this just a little bit ago, and it's great. This is something you apply to everything. Um, Tad Hyrup, hello. There are <laughs> there are three views in every situation. My view, your view, and the truth. <laughs> and that's really good. I think I think what that's what that is saying is that we're not really dead on as we think we are. Now we do the best we can. My time is up, but we're not as dead on as we think we are about things. And there is truth. We need to be balanced. We need we need to be uh, incredibly uh, good stewards of all truth, and not go in with the assumption that we are correct. Now, I do believe I'm correct, but I, I mean, just like today, I was watching politics and I watched one side and then I watched another side. I try to do that because I want to understand. I want to represent well, if that is something I think about or something that I get into a conversation about. That was way, there is about one minute past. I'm sorry. I'm not going to take that off of the next one. Now I'm trying to get this thing back up. And it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to. I don't know where it disappeared to. It's just gone. Um, all right. Hold on, guys. I I, I want to get this because this is so too much fun. I'm going to, I am going to do two things here. I'm going to delete this. And then I'm going to put it back here again. Let's see if I can get it. It shows to be right there. Is it right there? No. But... You watch this. You watch my magic, because I am a OBS king. Come back to me. Okay, it didn't come back. Okay, well, we're gonna have to go without the timer. Totally without the timer now. No, I can put it up here. Can I start it? No, I can't start it. That's just too bad. Okay, next question. What about Catholics? I, I get this all the time. What about Catholics? Are they true Christians? Well, I could just as easily ask you, what about Baptists? Are they true Christians? 
You know, and you might say, well, how can you compare the two? Well, because that's not a good question. Whenever you're asking about who is a good Christian, who are Christians, you ask about Christ, not their denomination. And I have seen Baptists who are really, really good Christians, and I've seen those who didn't know Christ at all. I've seen Catholics the same way, and that's the way we have to look at it. Remember, there are three sides to everything, uh, my side, your side, and the truth. And I think it's the same one we're talking about this. There are the Catholics, and there are the Protestants, and then there's the truth. Now, again, I believe that while I'm wrong on a lot of stuff, and I don't know what I'm wrong about, or I'd change it, um, I believe that I'm closer, or I want to preach these things. I want to, If I was talking to a Catholic and I wanted to help him understand what I believe to be the truth and not evangelize him, but, but help him to grow, help disciple this person, uh, I would talk about the things that we differ in. I'd start with the authority. Who's your authority? Who's my authority? What's our authority? Now, both of us would say our authority is God, but... They would say God's authority is mediated through both the magisterium and the Bible. The magisterium being Catholic tradition, the church, um, the the uh, councils of the church, the what are called ex cathedra statements of the Pope from the chair, those infallible statements that he makes. They believe in both of those. And in Catholicism, if you've ever been around it, there's a lot of stuff in this one over here where the church is the authority. Both of these are of equal authority. And what I would try to do is I would try to get them not to know Christ, but to understand. No, excuse me. I'm, I'm not trying to say. I, uh, I would not argue about issues that, that we need to cover before or after we cover this issue. This is a prelude to all issues, the issue of authority. And I would talk to them about authority and how I believe the Bible is the final authority. And their tradition itself, while good in many uh, cases, is not inspired and is not infallible. That's where the conversation would go. And it would be a great conversation. And it's a very, very important conversation. Because if you have another authority that you believe has has infallible uh, uh, mandate to guide you and direct you and to tell you how to do things and what the Bible means, that is huge. That is huge. But the thing is, understand this. Protestants and Catholics, the best of, all know Jesus. It's the same Jesus. And they have, they have been a bulwark of defending the Trinity in some of the most important issues, the resurrection of Christ, for the last 2,000 years. Now, we have two, and we, we before uh, were part of the institutionalized church in the sense of, of identity. Uh, Catholics broke away, and we broke away. I think the, the line of the church went down for, for uh, uh, a 1,000 years, and then the Eastern Orthodox broke away, and then the Catholics and Protestants split in two. It's all our tradition, but we don't hold to all the tradition as infallible down throughout the ages. We have a lot more freedom as Protestants. Uh, for instance, uh, the way in which church is conducted, that we can, we can adapt a lot to the culture. Now, there's some beauty in the Catholics to where they hold fast to a certain way of doing things, but I think it becomes really more hurtful sometimes. It's like not changing your language as the language changes because for some reason you think the initial language was the most important or a variant of that initial language. 
I hope I'm making sense here, but they are a bulwark in defending Christ. And the thing I would ask any Catholic is, tell me about why you love Christ. That's the, that's the question I ask everybody. Every leader I've ever uh, had under me, every employee I've ever had within my within this uh, credo houses, I say, tell me why you love Christ. That is the most definitive question that I can ask about their status before God. Now, I don't ask first, are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? Tell me your denomination. I just say, what what's going on with Christ in you? And then I'll be able to tell. Now, I think Catholics emphasize too much on other things sometimes, but so do Protestants. I think Catholics sometimes actually worship Mary, but Protestants sometimes actually worship the Bible. The Bible's not the issue. The Bible is just a record of infallible uh, uh, instructions, understanding, and history that tell about Christ, but it's not Christ itself. We worship Christ. Both of us worship Christ. I think we are closer to the truth. I think there's a burden on the Catholics' back that I would love to get off that is uh, that is um, like the Galatian burden where Paul comes to them and they're still trying to follow the law and thinking the law uh, and Christ will save them. I think once they get to heaven, they're going to see that all the stuff, good Catholics, you know, and good Protestants, once they get to heaven, they're going to see all the things that they did that were unnecessary and all the fear that they had that was unnecessary, believing that if you miss mass without a valid excuse, that you are no longer part of the church. You have lost the grace of God. I think that's really bad. I think it's scary for people. That's unnecessarily scary. And I don't think they're resting in Christ enough. So my, my, my goal would be, I want you to rest in Christ more. I want myself to rest in Christ more. But I want you to understand how radical the grace of God is. They asked Martin Luther, whenever Martin Luther, the father of Protestantism, said salvation is by faith alone, they said the institutionalized church of the day that became the Roman Catholic Church, they said if salvation is by faith alone, then people will do whatever they please. And Martin Luther said, yeah, that's right. Now what pleases you? You see, I mean, he understood that when you love Christ, your pleasures start to change. That different different pleasures, different times, that it's called sanctification, and the Holy Spirit takes over with that. But um, that's what I would try to do is get the burden off their back. Okay, I've probably gone way over. I'll fix this clock thing next time. Next question is, what is the gift of tongues? I'm going to have me short on this because I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm going to be short on this because... It's 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 a difficult issue. I could I could take forever going through this, and I am on this podcast. You know, I'm going through a series about the charismatic church and how I want to be charismatic. Confessions of a want to be charismatic. That's what it's called. And we've only done one session. You can check that out on on our page if you go to Credo Courses. I think it's the last pod, 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 uh, podcast or the one before that. But um, the gift of tongues, there's really a couple of different, no, there's really three views. Number one is that it is ecstatic utterances that you don't understand. Very few good Christians hold to that because it's very evident in Acts chapter two that that's not what it is. But it is ecstatic utterances that people have. And what I mean by ecstatic, ecstatic is um, an articulation that is not understandable kind of like crying. 
Like crying is a, an emotional articulation, uh, but you can't really understand why people are crying. Whenever they're crying, there's no conversation that you have. It's just something that you see. Now, whenever you're talking about the gift of tongues, many people believe that the gift of tongues is an emotional worship of God that is unintelligible. It's unintelligible articulation. And what it does is it's more like more like crying, but it's it's crying out to the Lord. It's praising him. It's kind of the reverse of crying. And so some people believe that. I've never done it before in my life, so I'm just I'm just saying what I've learned, what other people that do do it have told me if they do it legitimately. That's a question that's up for debate. Uh, and second view is it's always another known language that the people that are speaking it don't know, have never learned in their life, didn't go to school for it or anything, but suddenly they can speak it in order to tell another person there that knows that language, that speaks natively that language about the grace of God. So that is um, that is uh, the most common view, at least among people who are not charismatics. Then there's the third view, and I think that this view is really worth checking out more than you probably think I'm going to say, but it is the view that both of those are true. Sometimes it is an ecstatic utterance, and sometimes it is a, a known language to the person, but known to somebody else telling about God. Acts chapter 2, there's no doubt that it is an unknown language, unless you take a little minor kind of pit stop view on the side that says, um, or a side road view on the side that says it is an ecstatic utterance that becomes miraculously a known language that somebody else hears and says, hey, you're speaking of my language. So it's like this miraculous transformation. Not many people believe that, but um, the, the, I, I think uh, the third view is really worth looking at, that it is both a known language and an ecstatic, ecstatic utterance. I don't like that word. An unarticulated emotional cry out to God uh, of worship, of praise. And the reason why I say that is because Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, when people speak in tongues, nobody understands them. He speaks the mysteries of God. That's really interesting because we know in Acts chapter 2 what it is, but over here it seems like it may be something else as well. So that is what I believe the gift of tongues is, is both a known language that somebody speaks. So if you ever are with somebody and they don't speak your language, you want to tell them about God and all of a sudden you can speak their language. We know for sure that's the gift of tongues. And then if you ever start to praise out to God in some type of ecstatic utterances that you don't, other people don't understand, but it brings you emotional joy, overwhelming emotional joy, then that would be the other type of tongues. Like I said, I've never done either. And I don't necessarily believe that they are still going on today. They may be um, but you'll have to listen to my other broadcast for that. Okay. Do Calvinists believe in free will? No, no, no. I'm not doing that. I should have said it because now, now I feel like I have to answer. I'm not doing that yet. I am going to do that later. It's a big question. Um, here's a quick one. Can the finite comprehend the infinite? Now, this may not be a really good question in the way that I just said it. That is more the theological way to say it. But it's kind of the, it follows along the lines of these thoughts that we sometimes have. That our thoughts, what if our thoughts are so different than God's thoughts in the way we define things, in the way that we understand the the most important issues of life, like love and, and joy and goodness and evil? 
What if God's view is 100% opposite than ours? Or at least, what if God's view is so infinite we cannot understand it, so there's no reason to even try? Um, and sometimes you, you can fear that way. How do we know that our understanding of God is, is something that mirrors his understanding? Now, the early church dealt with this. This was very important to the early church because the early church, after the Bible was completed, they began to try to put it all together and understand it. There were some there who would say, hey, let's write more about this. Let's write theology books. Let's teach in some type of dogmatic way. Let's write dogma, which is doctrinal statements, things you have to believe. Let's get down everything you have to believe and let's write it down. Let's, let's understand everything. And they would do that. And then there was another side who said, what are you trying to do? You think you can understand God? You think the finite, you being finite, can understand the infinite, God being infinite and eternal. His view of love and his understanding of love is infinite. You can't even come close to it, so you shouldn't even try to define it. Or sometimes you think it's just a reverse. Well, here's here's what here, here's two things. Number one, the early church dealt with this, and they all came to the conclusion of what's called the analogy of being. The analogy of being. Look that up if you get a chance. B e i n g. The analogy of being. The analogy of being is basically the view that everybody came to, based on what I'm going to say in just a moment, that that God God is infinite. And yes, his views are so far above our views. They're the we, we can't even comprehend. You know, his thoughts are so far above our thoughts, and better than our thoughts. And his his understanding of love and goodness. But that doesn't mean we can't be accurate. the The basic saying of this is, uh, we can. Why we while we may not. Uh, know the truth fully, while we may not know the truth fully, we can understand it truly. You see, maybe maybe we're pointing in the direction of the sun, but if you follow that all the way down, it's not quite accurate. You know, if you go all the way down, but, and maybe it's better just to say something in my room, pointing at the curtain over here. Uh, I'm not pointing at it exactly, but I, it is sufficient enough. That's kind of the way it is with God and with our understanding of God. Um, and the reason why we believe this is because the Bible, I mean, why would God even attempt to communi- communicate to us? That's number one. We've got the Bible, and the Bible tells us about the love of God. And it goes on for hundreds of years. And God obviously sees that we can understand it enough so we can understand it truly. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell us. We wouldn't get the Ten Commandments. We wouldn't get uh, what Christ says about the uh, and the Beatitudes. Um, so, so that is one thing. And another thing is that... Uh, uh, God is, God is, well, I can't remember this one. This one's a good one too. It's very important. Okay. So just remember this. While we can't understand God fully, we can understand him truly. That is the analogy of being in summary, the summary of the analogy of being. There's something else that might pop in my mind. Okay, why do people raise their hands in worship? I just got this question, and you know, it's it, I, I laughed at it at first because I was like, "Well, that's come on, are you are you being serious?" He was like, "I'm totally serious. Why do people raise their hands in worship? That's weird." 
So this isn't really a charismatic issue either. I mean, you may call it charismatic whenever people raise their hands in worship, but you may have gone to a church. You may be like me whenever I was younger. If I walked into a church and everybody's raising their hands and, you know, uh, 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 topping that off by dancing or, uh, uh, you know, doing weird things uh, in the eye, you know, I've, I've gone to church where people are going right by me while the singing's going on. They're doing ballet, you know, and everybody else is raising their hands, closing their eyes. Some of them are crying. And I sit there and I say, what? I mean, this is just not me. I can't come here. But in my mind during that, at, at that time, I said, that's wrong. And I came up with ways why it was wrong. Here's the way I came up with it, with why it's wrong. I said, these guys are, are pridefully trying to draw attention to themselves and saying, oh, look at me. I'm worshiping God. I've got my hands up. Um, it could be that sometimes that happens. I don't know. But what about whenever you have everybody with their hands up? And I've begun to appreciate that quite a bit. I still don't do it. I don't raise my hands. A lot of people say, you know, define charismatic by how far your hands are raised in in worship. That's not really the way you define charismatic, but it is a definition if we took it a different way that's not theological. But here's the deal. Listen to this. This is the deal. Um, it's a personality thing. And usually, and unfortunately or fortunately, People break up into their personality groups. So you'll have one church that everybody raises their hands in worship and another church where they sing old hymns in worship and some churches that you just don't do anything at all that is singing oriented. Uh, they have just a whole different program. Uh, it's just cultural. It's cultural and personality driven. You're going to go find, according to your personality, the ones that you fit in with best. And there's nothing wrong with that. There really isn't. There's nothing wrong with having different churches doing things a different way. Whenever I was in Trinidad, um, on a mission trip, that was, that was very interesting. That style of worship they had and how long they went completely different than anything I'd ever seen. Started late every time, no matter what. It was very late, and they went so long. I mean, I'm talking like hours in worship. And I couldn't say that it was right or wrong, but I, I kind of was like, God, when is this going to end? Why? Because that's my personality. I'm not into that. Someday I may, may be. I am definitely more into worship than I used to be, and I do actually like it whenever people raise their hands, as long as there's good theology in the church. I think this is really, really cool. I wish I was like this. But I'm not, I'm not there. That's not my emotional makeup. I wish the church was more mixed, uh, but it's not going to be. I mean, people are always going to get into the areas, their circles, that most are like them. But I think you should get out of that circle sometime and go to something else. There's very traditional churches. If you're in a traditional church, a Anglican church, a, a Catholic church, Presbyterian church that does things that's very, very structured— Get out of the box for a little while. Go somewhere else, not to evaluate whether it's right or wrong, just to see how people do things and worship God with other people and and begin to appreciate the, the diversity that God has created. Not to criticize. People are going to be different than you. People are going to enjoy the very traditional stuff sometimes. Sometimes it's a stage of life. Early on in your life, you really like this tradition, and then later on you like this tradition. It doesn't make the later one right. It's not like you graduated to a right one. But sometimes we just get sick of or tired of or no longer in need of the type of, um, the type of ministry that we are getting at a certain place. You may go to a Bible church of some sort, 
And man, I'm telling you, you know the Bible very, very well. doesn't mean you can't keep on going back and be reminded. That's a great thing, as Peter says. But it would be great for you to go somewhere else and engage and see how other people do things. This is really illustrated well by working out. Whenever you're exercising, there's a certain thing that you do. Uh, let's let's say you every every week or every uh, workout you do uh, either back or biceps, chest and triceps, or legs, those three, and you go through those, and that's what you've done, and you do sixteen sets every time. But during those workouts, you make you 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 mix it up some. You don't do the same thing every time. Like you may start with lat pull downs when you're doing your back, and then next time you start with. You start with biceps instead. That is a good change. It shocks your muscles. That's what it's called, shocking your muscles. If you do the exact same thing every time, like if you get on a machine, that's why machines aren't as good as free weights. If you get on a machine that is limited in its range of motion, you're going to be doing the same thing every time, the same range of motion, the same muscles. They're going to get used to it and say, oh, this is easy. Every time we do this, we don't even need to break down and change. But if you come in there and radically change it up, then all of a sudden you grow, your muscles grow. So you go to free weights, and free weights doesn't have a limited range of motion. And then sometimes you just change it up altogether. Instead of doing 12 sets of different things, you do, you do 20 sets of one thing. Uh, you go and find a friend, and you say, hey, I'm going to come work out with you, and let's do your po- program. You won't believe how sore you are, how much effect that has changing it. Many times we need to do this within the church. You may have a pattern that you're very comfortable with. But let me tell you something, you need to break that pattern sometime. You need to get out and see something else. See the way God is doing other things. God doesn't. God has so much freedom in so many areas. That is, is the greatest thing about that being a Christian is the freedom that we have. Uh, there's a central person, Jesus Christ. There are central things that we do. But there's so much freedom outside of that, and God loves that freedom. And this, I think this freedom will even be in the new heavens and the new earth. People will like different things and worship different ways. That's okay. Um, and then finally, that is it. Hey, no, I did six. Sorry, I did six of them. I was only supposed to do five. That is why we have gone 37 minutes. All right, listen, if you've made it this long, don't forget to get on my Patreon page, which I don't have here, but on my Patreon, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, I'll put it in in the uh, description, go there and and support what I'm doing. If you believe what I'm doing, all the courses that uh, um, I do at Credo Courses, uh, these podcasts and uh, the blog and just everything that I'm doing, support me because I want to keep on doing this for the rest of my life. I've done it now for 25 years and I appreciate so much all of you that have helped all my patrons. I, I appreciate them so much. They're making it easier on me, but I do need more. And we also, as a ministry, do need $2,000 right now. Just think about it. I'll put a donation page uh, uh, button down at the bottom. But that is what we need. Um, So if you can, if you can contribute anything to that, that would be wonderful. Uh, You go to credocourses.com, click on the donate button if you're not watching this or if there's no link in the description. You go to Patreon and you look for C. Michael Patton. Um, and then you'll find mine. And then finally, I don't know what else I was going to say. I had third thing. 
because it comes in threes. But either way, uh, I thank you so much for listening. And I hope to see you or I hope you hear me next time.